Are you forgiven? Are you forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ? When you come to the cross, do you see forgiveness? One, as he took our place, became sin for us. What a powerful message and what an important thought. This morning, as later we will gather around the Lord's table to remember that even more. Keep those songs in your head. But before we get there, let's turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we continue to um, work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, slowly but surely. Hopefully not too slow, but hopefully very sure as we work our way through this. Matthew 22, if you're using a Bible provided, it's page 1052. Is this life all that is? Is there life after death? If you think that this life is all that is, then you join a long line of people who have thought the same thing over the millennium, including even religious people in Jesus' day. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and sometimes philosophers and and, uh, so-called wise people of the world think they have come up with something new and something novel that they have thought of something that no one else ever has. They say something like, well, maybe this life is all there is. There's no life after death. There's nothing after this. All you see and all that is here is, is what is here. And they think that somehow that is new. No, it was around. It's been around for a long time. It was around in Jesus' day, even among religious people. So when you hear that from religious people, don't be surprised either, because that is a long-time heresy. But I would say this, even if you think that way now, if you sit here today and you think, you know, this life is all there is, I'm here with these religious people, but I don't really believe in life after death, I don't believe what, what that song just sang about resurrection, I would venture to say that even though you might believe that now, you haven't always believed that. There was a time in your past when you thought there was a heaven, there was a hell, there was at least something else after this life. And if you can never remember believing that, so some of you might say, nope, as long as I can remember, I've always thought this life is all there is. I've never believed in life after death. Well, if you, if you can truly say that, I believe that almost certainly you sit here today with some doubts about whether that is actually true or not. Something nagging at you that they're, they're even though you don't believe it, there, there just could be. Maybe you're just not sure you are right. And I don't just say those things about the belief in life after death based upon my personal experience or based on my years of being a pastor for a couple decades. I say that based on divine revelation from God's word. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time, talking about God our creator. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. God has put the understanding of eternity in every person's heart. You are born into this world with a a, a sort of comprehension that there is something more than this life. And you can't maybe put a finger on why you believe that, because God has put it in your heart. Yet... It doesn't mean that because God has put that in our hearts that we can just understand everything from beginning to end as if this knowledge is complete and total. No, it's just an understanding of there is something more than this life and every person has it. We're born with it because God has put it into our heart. There is an innate sense of eternity that there is something beyond this life and this is from God. And so with those thoughts in mind, we're gonna see some things from Jesus' life and the challenge of the resurrection. But before we look into the scripture, let's pray together. Father, we need your help today to understand things that are beyond our personal experience. Um, We haven't seen what comes next. We we haven't had visions or dreams. We haven't gone into the, the afterlife. And so we have to come to your word. We have to come by faith to take you at your word. And so we ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would show us what the truth is, that we might know it and understand it, even though we have not yet experienced it. May you be glorified to bring souls to salvation. Even this morning, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew 22. I'm going to start in verse 23, and I'll read through 33. Follow along in your Bible as I read. The same day 
Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's revelation, his divine revelation given to us this morning. May we listen to it. The theme this morning from our text is Jesus the King is Lord of the Scriptures and Lord of Eternity. Jesus the King is Lord of the Scriptures and Lord of Eternity. Where we find ourselves in the context, where we find ourselves here in the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus is in an open and ongoing conflict with the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of Judaism. And Jesus has openly challenged their authority. And he has just finished publicly teaching three parables that condemned the religious rulers of his day. Yet instead of repenting, what have they decided to do? They have decided to attack him. They have decided to continue to seek to destroy him. The Pharisees' plot to get Jesus in trouble with the civil government has failed, and that is what just took place. But now the Sadducees, the other ruling party in the Sanhedrin, step up to challenge Jesus. So we have these challenges. Jesus has condemned them, and the Pharisees in verses 15 to 22 have brought a challenge and they failed. So the Sadducees, they step up and they decide to challenge Jesus. And we'll see how that goes for them in our passage this morning. Also, don't forget that this is the Passion Week, which means this is the week of Jesus' death. And so though it's an extended part of Matthew, multiple chapters, it is simply one week. And what we're looking at even today is one part of one day. The challenge that came in the last section, same day. You notice that in verse 23, the same day. And that challenge came after all three parables had been taught on the same day. So we're talking about an extended period of time where this public confrontation started. And it began back in chapter 21, verse 23. And the conflict will take place throughout the day, ending in chapter 23, 39. So you have over two chapters of this ongoing conflict all in just one day. And so we need to understand what is going on here as, as best we can as we look at this passage. So what is taking place here? Well, the same day, the same day that the Pharisees challenged him, the same day that he taught these parables, the Sadducees come to him. And the Sadducees' attempt to discredit Jesus is the first thing we see. The Sadducees' attempt to discredit Jesus the same day the Sadducees came to him and they asked him a question. What kind of question did they ask him? They asked him a disingenuous question. A disingenuous question. They come to discredit him and they ask him a question. Now this seems innocent enough if you don't understand what's going on below the surface, what's going on in the context. So they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, and they asked a theological question of a religious teacher. And they sound respectful. They looked respectful. It sounds all good. But right away, Matthew is kind to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us a narrator's note. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They came to Jesus with an elaborate hypothetical about marriage in the resurrection. And they don't even believe in the resurrection. Do you see the problem? Right from the beginning, we can see the problem is these people who have a question about the resurrection are asking a question about something they don't believe even exists or will ever happen. So right away, you understand that this is not an honest, legitimate question. So how do we 
What do we know about the Sadducees? The Sadducees don't show up a lot in, in, the, in the New Testament. Typically, it's the Pharisees who are, who are coming after Jesus. So a couple things to know about the Sadducees to help understand a little bit more where we're at is that the Sadducees only accepted or considered authoritative the first five books of the Old Testament. And the first five books of the Old Testament are known as the books of Moses. So when they say Moses said, where are they going to get their information? Only things that they believe Moses wrote, just the first five books. So they only think that those are the only books that matter or those are the most authoritative. It can kind of go either way. Now this view of Scripture ruled out the clearest texts on the resurrection of the dead. If you want to see the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, you would not go to the books of Moses preeminently. You'd go to Daniel. You'd go to Isaiah. You'd go to Job. You'd go to other places. And so seeing how they ruled out all of that information, you can understand why they would struggle or doubt that there is life after death because they're narrowing their uh, understanding of the Scripture. Matthew Henry says this. Secondly, they denied the resurrection. And by denying the resurrection, they said there is no future state no life after this life, that when the body dies, the soul is annihilated and dies with it, that there is no state of rewards or punishments in the other world, no judgment to come in heaven or hell. They maintain that except God, there is no spirit, nothing but matter and motion. Does that sound familiar today? All the materialists, all the evolutionary materialists who think that this life is all there, all there is in life is matter. There's no spirit. There's no, no spiritual. It's just, it's just the material. These are the religious um, progressives of their day, just like the religious progressives of our day. These are the things that the, the Sadducees believe and where they stand. Now, what I want you to see when you come to this disingenuous question is that the issue isn't the issue. These are repeated challenges. I've said this over and over. The issue isn't the issue. The issue for the Sadducees is not their question. What's their, what's their issue? They want to discredit and destroy Jesus. That's their aim and that's their goal. And they are only asking questions as a means to an end. And because they are disingenuous, Jesus doesn't need to answer their question. He doesn't have to answer this. They deserve absolutely no answer because their, their question is not honest. But their question is important. So that even though it doesn't matter for them what the answer is, because it's, it's not about the question. For us, we can look at that. So secondly, we see the important question considered. The important question considered. They said to Jesus, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. What is this situation that they're talking about? Well, the situation is this. It's the idea of leveret marriage. Have you ever heard of leveret marriage? Probably not. Even some of you who've read a lot of Bible probably don't remember this. And the leveret marriage is the marriage of a husband's, the marriage of the husband's brother to his wife after he dies. The marriage of a husband's brother. And it's first mentioned in Genesis 38. So you can write these down. You can, and if you're really interested, you can look this up because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Genesis 38 is the first time it's mentioned in the narrative. It's just mentioned as an account, something that happened. A man died. He had no heir. He had no children. He had no son. And so his wife married his brother. And you can read the story. It's, it's not a pleasant story. It's one of those Old Testament stories that is, uh, uh, you know, rated PG-13 to rated R. So, uh, and every child says, well, I want to read that story, right? You got to look that one up. Um, and the reason that uh, the second time that leveret marriage is referenced is in Deuteronomy 25, where it is now included in God's law. So first of all, it's just a mention in the narrative of what was taking place. And now it's been included in God's law of what should or what needs to take place. And the reason that Moses is referenced by the Sadducees is because he is the human author of both Genesis and Deuteronomy. So Moses has taught this by writing it in the narrative, but also including it in God's law. You might be more familiar with one of the uh, applications of this law that shows up in the book of Ruth. The idea of the kinsman redeemer, the idea of a family member marrying a widow. And if you remember in the book of Ruth, that was because there was property involved and there was uh, inheritance involved and all of those things. That's all flowing from this idea of leveret marriage. And that's where the question comes from. At 
One time, this would have been very important. If you think about land property, you think about the 12 tribes, you think about whose name was where and how all of these things took place. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament about keeping each parcel of land in each tribe. But now that the Babylonian captivity has happened, Israel's back. They don't even know the genealogies much for many people. You can read that in the book of Ezra. Not everyone knows where they came from or what the land is. Now all of this has been jumbled, and now this is not very important anymore. But it's still in the law. And probably at the time of Jesus, hardly anybody would have been practicing this. This is kind of like an, an old way of handling things when things were different. And so it's not that important to the point because it wasn't even really a concern for their day. Notice the second part of the problem with the question. We're bringing up little tiny, you know, <laughs> it's like find that most, uh, un, that, that law in the books somewhere. Have you ever read one of those books? I think uh, we have that in some of the stuff we have at home. You know, like laws in other states that nobody knows about. Like you can't carry around an ice cream cone in your back pocket in Ann Arbor, Michigan or something like that. That's against the law. I mean, seriously, th- there's insane laws on the books in many places. And the, you can read that stuff. It's like coming to Jesus, having found in, in the code, the law code, some unimportant, unenforced, no one talks about it, part of the law, and then using this to discredit him. Are you noticing the problem? That's the situation here. Now, they weren't necessarily bringing up leveret marriage at all. The only reason they bring it up is because they want to get to the main point of the question. The important point of the question is the eternal ramifications of this kind of marriage. If a woman has been married to seven brothers in this life, that's important, in this life, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I see some of you are having a problem with thinking about marrying your husband's brother, okay, or two brothers, or seven brothers. And that is where the movie, The Seven Brides for Seven, no, no, has no reference at all to that movie. All right. so, <laughs> uh, but it is, for most of you, a very disturbing thought uh, to think about this. Move away from that thought. Focus in. <laughs> now, if taken seriously, their question presupposes, listen carefully, if taken seriously, their question presupposes that resurrection life is exactly like earthly life. That's the problem with their presupposition to the question. They are seeing, thinking that eternal life, even though they deny that it exists, there is no eternal life for them. But if it did exist, it must be exactly like this life. And that is an incorrect presupposition. And if that would be true, so if that is true, and it's not, then the resurrected woman would be guilty of incestuous marriages... So how is she going to be married in the afterlife to these seven brothers? Or she's going to have to arbitrarily be designated as one of the, the wife of one of the brothers instead of the other six, and how would that be? And so they're, they're bringing up this really weird situation. And though that's, that's point C, the absurd hypothetical noted. This is an absurd hypothetical. So now that you have the background of where they get their information, let's address... The hypothetical. Now, the, the hearers of Jesus' day would be very familiar with this. They'd be familiar with the law, the Old Testament. They'd be familiar with, with all of these things. We're not. And so we want to talk about that. But even in Jesus' day, this question was absurd. The hypothetical is absurd. And what they are doing by asking such an absurd question is trying to ridicule the idea of the resurrection. They're taking a real-life scenario but they're taking it from a very minute part of the law that's not really even being practiced or enforced today, and they're exaggerating it beyond all comprehension. Seriously? So, you know, we have seven brothers, and she marries one, and we go, she goes to all seven brothers, and not one of them does she has a child, and then she dies. It's, it's absurd. But what they are doing by giving this absurd hypothetical is they assume, and they assume correctly, that Jesus is going to take the conservative theological position. The conservative theological position of the Pharisees, that he's going to believe in life after death as the conservatives do. So they are trying to box him in with something absurd to discredit him because he's going to believe in life after death, believe in the resurrection, and now he's going to have to answer this this really unanswerable question. They're trying to make him look foolish in public. (laughs) How's that going to go for them? Any ideas? Any, Any thoughts? And we read through it, but... But you just got to think about that. They're trying to discredit him by making him look foolish. Let me bring some application to us. You say, well, what application do we learn? Not leveret marriage. I'm not going to explain that to you. Okay, We're not going to apply that part of the law to today. Don't worry. 
That's not the point. Here's some application. Hardened hearts fixate on speculative questions to avoid gospel realities. Hardened hearts fixate on speculative questions to avoid gospel realities. Often people who do not want to face up to the claims of Christ grasp at any difficulty they can find to discredit the truth. They will grasp at any problem they can raise to keep from dealing with the gospel. So it's not a new thing for skeptics to handle God's truth by mocking the scripture. And it's interesting here how the Sadducees attach their argument to an obscure law and then use that obscure law from the Bible as an argument against the central truth of the Bible, the resurrection of the dead. They're using the Bible and something obscure and taken out of context and not even talked about to then attack something that's central to the truth of the Scripture. Something, remember, they don't even believe exists. They don't believe in life after death. But what will they believe for the moment? They'll talk about life after death only to discredit the truth. They'll use the Scripture to destroy the Scripture about something they don't even believe in. Sound familiar? This is how skeptics operate They use an obscure law to attack God's truth elsewhere. They raise a difficulty about a practice that only true believers would struggle with and then use it against believers. So people who don't believe in certain things are going to raise those certain things because they know you believe in it. They know you take the Bible seriously. They reject the scripture. They reject all the scripture. But when they think it suits their point, what will they do? They'll quote the Bible against you though they reject all of it. Are Are you catching that? They'll use a verse of scripture that they don't believe is God's word. They'll use it to attack you and and another important part of scripture, even though they don't believe in any of it. So when they use the Bible to attack you with the Bible, what's the first thing you should say? So you believe the Bible's true? You believe the Bible's God's word? Well, no, I don't believe the Bible's God's word. So then why are you even talking about it at all? Why do you bring up the resurrection when you don't believe in the resurrection? Why don't you talk about something you believe in from the scripture? Then we can talk about something that we have a a starting point. We both believe something from the scripture. So there's a lot of ways to handle that, but notice the way it, it comes at this. And this is a way that people avoid the most important things. They raise a question that you have to answer, something you would have to hold to because you believe it, but they don't believe it, and they use it to attack you. So J.C. Ryle writes this. An unbelieving mind will often refuse to look at the overwhelming mass of plain evidence by which Christianity is supported and will fasten down on some single difficulty which it fancies to be unanswerable. The talk and arguments of people of this character should never shake our faith for a moment. Here's the unbelieving mass of evidence to the truth of Christianity. Here's the unbelievably... uh, complete and full revelation of God in his word. And what are they going to do? They're going to look for that one tiny piece to try to attack you with it that they think is ridiculous. And they're doing that because they want to avoid the truth. They want to avoid the truth of the gospel. They want to avoid their own conviction of their own soul. They want to avoid everything that is obviously true from scripture. It's a tactic to assuage their own conscience and to avoid the reality of the truth, but also to attack you and destroy you with that very truth they say they don't don't believe in. So watch it. Don't answer them. So this is the whole, don't answer a fool according to his folly. But answer a fool so that he won't remain in his folly. So how do we do that? This this takes some thought. This takes some, this work. But this is very applicable to our day as we understand how skeptics use the scripture even while denying the scripture. And how they use it to destroy our faith when they have no faith of their own, in the scripture at least. And we shouldn't let those attacks or those arguments shake our faith at all. Do you know enough of the Bible to answer every ridiculous question that someone can ask from the scripture? Just just spend 10 minutes online, and I don't even know what to Google, but Google ridiculous Bible questions. And and you sit there and go, I didn't even know that verse was in the Bible. I didn't even know this... I don't even know where to start with that. Leveret marriage? Where do I start with that? First of all, you start by saying, do you believe in leveret marriage? Are you going to practice this if we study this out? No? Okay, then why are we even spending our time on it? You don't believe it. You don't. We just have to understand how these things happen. Okay, secondly, let's move on. Jesus' devastating and victorious answer. 
Jesus' devastating and victorious answer. What's he say to this question? Well, let's learn some things. But Jesus answered them. So the but is very important. There's a contrast here. They don't deserve an answer, but he gives them one. And he starts off by telling them that, that you are wrong. So the Sadducees were wrong. That's it. They're wrong. <laughs> but he's, he's kind and gracious by telling them that they're wrong, by telling them how they're wrong. He says that they do not, they did not know the scriptures. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures. That's the first way they're wrong. Now, listen carefully. Why did the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead? So, Jewish religious people have two takes on the resurrection of the dead. Why do the Pharisees believe that there is resurrection from the dead? Because they believe the Bible. They believe the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures clearly teach the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to give you three places. You can write them down. Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Daniel 12, 2. Daniel 12, 2. And then Job 19, 25 to 27. Job 19, 25 to 27. Those are three places. There's more than that, but there's three places to start to teach the resurrection from the dead in the Old Testament. But also, the Old Testament and the resurrection uh, from the dead is found in, even in the books of Moses. Jesus is going to use one of those examples in just a minute. We're going to look at that. So the Pharisees believe in the resurrection from the dead because it's in the Bible. Why do the Sadducees deny the resurrection from the dead if it's in the Bible? Well, one of the reasons they would is because if they only take the first five books, they've ruled out the clearest text on the resurrection. So you say, well, their, their denial of life after death and the resurrection would be theological. But notice the second part of what Jesus is going to say. They did not know the power of God. So first of all, you don't know the scriptures, but secondly, that is somehow tied to the, to the knowledge of the power of God. And that leads me to think that like all theological progressives and all skeptics, the reason they don't believe in the resurrection has nothing to do with the Bible, has everything to do with other suppositions and presuppositions that come. They either denied some of God's revelation or, or the rest of it, but both are fatal errors. Do the Sadducees know the scriptures that the Pharisees believed in? Are they familiar with those verses? Had they ever heard the Pharisees argue these verses in theological debate? Sure, they, they were aware. They, they had knowledge of these scriptures, but they denied the truth of those scriptures. They denied they were from God. They denied that they were authoritative. And as soon as we start taking bits and pieces of the Bible keeping some because they match up with what we already believe, getting rid of other things because they don't match what we believe, or we take one part of Scripture and elevate it above others, are we not noticing the theological problems that come from that? That's the Sadducees. They did not take all of God's Word as equally authoritative, equally true, and they ended up with great theological problems. So notice it's not an information problem. Even though Jesus says they did not know the Scriptures, Notice what he's saying there is about their faith. They, they did not know in the sense of they did know the information, but they denied the information is true. So it was a faith problem. But they also denied the power of God. So what causes them to doubt or deny God's power? I said this earlier, fundamental presuppositions. They denied the scripture that articulated God's power in this way. Is God able to raise the dead? Would they have said he's able? Would they have said God is powerful enough to raise the dead? I don't know. Did they deny God's power to bring life from death? In their minds, somehow this, this wasn't scientifically probable or possible. It definitely wasn't something they had experienced. So you could say, well, we've never seen anybody who rose from the dead. We haven't seen anybody come back from the dead. Therefore, it must be impossible. There's all kinds of ways for people to rule out the truth of God's word. But notice it doesn't really matter because God's word is clear. Now here's the important thing. How do you come to know the power of God? If you do not know the power of God, where should you go to learn the power of God? What am I hearing? The Bible. Why should the Sadducees know the power of God? Because they should know the Bible. They should know the scriptures, but they don't know the scriptures. Therefore, they don't know the power of God. Now you say, I already said they, they, they had information, 
But notice for us today, it's not so much that we know the information. So let me piece some things together. Ignorance of Scripture is the foundation of ignorance of God, and ignorance of God is the foundation of all foolishness. Not knowing the Scriptures means you do not know God, and if you do not know God, that is the foundation of being a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. How would he come to know God? Most importantly, finally and fully, in the Scriptures. So ignorance of the Scripture is ignorance of God, and that is the foundation of foolishness. Both of those ignorances will keep you from saving faith. If you don't know the Scripture, you won't know God, and not knowing either one will keep you from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that their ignorance isn't intellectual, it is moral. I already said this. They knew the Old Testament. They had read the Old Testament. They'd heard the verses. They rejected the truth of God's word. And why do they reject the truth of God's word? Because they are in rebellion against God. It's a moral problem that leads to their information problem. It's a moral problem. It's a rejection of God. It's rebellion against God. That's why they deny the truth. And that's the same today. When you come across someone, a skeptic specifically, who's going to take the word of God, try to defeat, it, defeat you with it, pull some obscure verse out of some obscure passage and try to attack you with it, their problem is not information. Their problem is rebellion. So you could take the word of God, you could open it, you could study that point out all day long for a week and come back with that person and say, I found the answer to your question. Let me answer it biblically. And they say, Hey, listen, you go through it, and you might not even make in, in a couple sentences in before they say, oh, I don't care. Well, I've got the answer to your question. I don't, I don't care. Well, I don't believe any of that. I don't, I'm not looking for an answer to a question. I'm in rebellion against God, and it doesn't matter what your answer is from God's word. I don't have an information problem. I have a faith problem. And therefore, all of your answering their questions only from knowledge or information is not going to change a thing about the rebellion against God. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to answer questions or you shouldn't listen to questions. You should try to discern this. Is it an honest question for someone who will honestly listen to the answer from God's word? Are they open to hearing the truth from God's word or are they just using the word of God to attack you and therefore any answer you give, they're just going to reject out of hand because they reject it all. We preach the truth so that the Holy Spirit can use the truth to break through the blindness of people who hate and rebel against God. And you're never going to debate or argue someone into faith. Doesn't mean you shouldn't give an answer. Doesn't mean you shouldn't know the scripture. Obviously not. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But you must understand it's rebellion that's their problem. So we pray for them. We preach the truth to them. We don't get caught up in these questions. Their problem is rebellion. And that's a Sadducee's problem. Now Jesus wisely answers their question. Jesus wisely answers their question. Understand that in the resurrection refers not only to resurrection of the dead, but also the state of life that follows. Eternal life in heaven. So when Jesus answers their question, he goes, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection. So after the resurrection, in eternal life, in life and eternity, this is what he's talking about. In eternity in heaven, there will be no marriage. Now we need to hear this. This is important. The Sadducees don't care about the real answer, but as Christians, we should care about the truth of God's word, and we should care about Jesus' answer on these questions. There is no marriage in heaven. Mankind will be like angels in heaven. Interesting, the Sadducees don't believe in angels either, so Jesus kind of throws another dig at them. <laughs> you don't believe in eternal life, and you, and you don't believe in angels? Well, in eternal life, we'll be like angels. <laughs> now, here's what Jesus is saying, according to the commentator R.T. France. It is a mistake to picture life in heaven as being simply an extrapolation of life on earth. First problem. Don't think life in heaven is just the next life like it is on earth. The power of God creates something different, fitted to a life which is not temporary but eternal. In the resurrection, we will not be like we are now. We will be fitted for eternal life. Not temporary, but eternal. Sexual life is obviously affected by this, since procreation belongs to earthly, not heavenly life. 
Because in heaven there is no birth, growth, or death. Marriage, as the institution within which earthly procreation is set, is therefore out of place. If there's no procreation, if there's no birth, life, and death, then what point does marriage have? It has no purpose. It has no point. Marriage is fitted for this life. It's temporary. It's earthly. It's physical. And it means that the exclusiveness which links one man with one woman in a jealously guarded relationship will no longer apply. People in heaven will be like angels, not because we'll be asexual. Don't get that idea. And not that we'll just be asexual beings like angels are. No, people will be like angels in heaven in this sense who do not marry or procreate because they are eternal. And you should know theologically enough who will we be married to in heaven? To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the husband and we as the church are the bride. And so there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven for all of these reasons. That is really important. Now, let me ask you this. How does that truth sit with you? And this, I'm, this is just a side note, but I think this might be one of the things that might rock your world more than anything else I'm going to say today for most of us. Does that change your perspective on heaven that you won't be married in heaven? Not to your husband now or not to his brother. <laughs> but is that... Is that sh- and, and let me tell you why I think that might, that might really be hard for us to, to come to grips with. Because most people, even many Christians, speak of heaven primarily in terms of human relationships. What are you looking forward to in heaven? Most widowers or widows will talk about looking forward to heaven because they can't wait to see their spouse in heaven. Now, there might be others who are happy to not have be married to them in heaven. But for many, they're looking forward to that. And so they look, they think about heaven in light of, I can't wait to get to heaven to be with my husband or my wife who's passed away. But what does the Bible say? You're not going to be with your husband or wife when you die that way in heaven. Just think about that. How much does that destroy all of the things that some people are looking forward to. So I'm not going to be married in heaven. My spouse won't be my spouse in heaven. We won't have that kind of relationship in heaven. What about my kids? We won't be one family. It, all my kids and aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa and mom and dad, it's not going to be like that in heaven. Okay, so if relationships aren't going to be like that in heaven and all these things are different, well, then what, what am I looking forward to in heaven? <laughs> I'm looking forward to Christ. And the crazy thing is, it's, it's, it's totally understandable from, from, from pagans who don't trust in Jesus Christ and don't believe in the Bible, but for Christians to be so focused on human relationships, not just here, but in eternity. It's totally different. In such a way, we cannot comprehend the difference. But that should not detract from what makes heaven heaven. It should focus us on what makes heaven heaven. And what is that, Isaac? You should say a little bit. I thought I'd get a little more enthusiasm. The first one was better. <laughs> Jesus. It's Jesus. That's what we should be looking forward to in heaven. And this text, even though it's a disingenuous question, even though it's a side note, Jesus gives us something very, very important for us to understand as Christians and how that changes our concept of eternity. So don't me- measure the eternal by the temporal. Don't measure heaven by earthly standards. Think about how terrible that is that we look at heaven as just like a greater earth. Like it's just like earth, but just better. I don't get sick and everybody's happy and my marriage will be even greater. No, there's no marriage. Oh, wait, what am I looking forward to? Don't look at it that way. So now Jesus has, has answered their question. He's dealt with it, but he goes further. Jesus educates them on the reality of the resurrection of the dead and eternal life. He goes further. He, he brings the truth. He's answered their question, verses 29 and 30. Mostly the answer was verse 30. But then he brings home the the information in verses 31 and 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Where does God explicitly teach the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament? I gave you three places. I bet none of us, including me, could have come up with one before today. 
If I were to say to you, where does the Old Testament teach the resurrection of the dead? Because most of you only know some passages from the New Testament. You would draw a blank. And if you knew some of the passages, if you didn't remember this New Testament passage, most of you would not turn to the passage that Christ deals with. Where does God say that saints will spend eternity with him in heaven? And for most of us, the Old Testament is blank on this, at least as far as we, as, as we know. So I ask you, would you turn to the place that Christ turns to to teach this truth? Now Jesus quotes something. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Where is that quoting from? Exodus 3, 6. Anybody know what happens in Exodus 3? The burning bush. You get a gold star, Shay. Good job. The burning bush. What soever did you ever learn about resurrection from the dead in Sunday school when they talked about the burning bush? There's Moses. He's taking care of the sheep. A bush catches on fire. Moses goes over to take a look because the, fire, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. So he goes over and a voice speaks to him from the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jake, Isaac and the God of Jacob. And you said, oh, that's what the Sunday school teacher said. Guess what, kids? This is all about the resurrection of the dead. And then they turn to the New Testament and explain how those things connected. You say, no, never heard about it. But that's what Jesus says. Where does Jesus go in the scripture to teach the resurrection from the dead and life eternal? He goes to Exodus 3, verse 6. This is why knowledge of scripture is so far deeper than most of us can even begin to imagine. We don't even know the surface texts. How do we know the deeper texts and the applications of them? This means that as believers, what must we do? Study, study, study. Read, read, read. Study some more and read some more. Why do we have a Bible reading challenge? Because as Christians, as people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in the resurrection of the dead, who believe that one day we will be in eternity in heaven with God forever, we don't know the Bible. We don't know the Old Testament. I say, what's in Exodus 3? You say, I don't know. What is Jesus teaching from the burning bush? What is God teaching us? The resurrection from the dead. No way. There's so much to it. So much to it. Well, how does it teach the resurrection from the dead? Let me just give you an understanding of this. It's not as simple as you think. The argument is not linguistic. So sometimes you look at that and you say, well, it's talking present tense. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God. So it's present tense, not past tense or future tense. But it is, it's more than that. It's based on the nature of God's relationship with his people. The covenant by which he binds himself to his people is too strong to be terminated by their death. God is in covenant relationship with his people. I am the God of Abraham. I am in covenant relationship with Abraham, and that covenant relationship will last eternally. Why is that necessary, or why is that true? Because God is an eternal God. And he is an, in an eternal relationship with his people. You say, I have a God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is my God. And for all of my life, I will serve and love and follow this God. And when I die, the relationship's over. Nope, that's just a relationship with your spouse and your kids and your family. But the relationship with God, that covenant loving relationship will last eternally. And it will only be strengthened in the life to come. It won't be broken in the life to come. So if God is eternal and we're in an eternal relationship with him, then what does that mean about our lives after we die here? Does God continue an eternal loving relationship with dead people? No. He's not God of the dead, but he's God of the living. Therefore, what's true about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're alive. Though they died physically, they live. Though they die, yet they shall live. Though we die, yet we shall live. And eternally we'll be in a covenant relationship with God our Father, with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, eternally. As husband and bride. All of these things are true. This is a covenantal argument from Jesus Christ. And most of us don't even know what the word covenantal means. More or less be able to apply it to the resurrection of the dead coming from the burning bush. And you say, pastor's too much, I just quit, I give up. Just give me the simple gospel. No, we should be challenged to read and study and go deeper. 
So what are some implications? Let me give you some implications. I get these from Matthew Henry. Notice what the scripture speaks, God speaks. See what Jesus said? Have you not read what was said to you by God? When the scripture speaks, who's speaking to you when you read your Bible today and tomorrow and the next day? When you open it to Ezra, when you open it to Nehemiah, when you open it to Second Chronicles, who's speaking to you? God is speaking to you. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. Why must we be in the word of God every day? Because we want to hear God speak. And the only way we know God is speaking is in his word. Now, next, secondly, what was spoken to Moses was spoken to us. It was spoken and written for our learning. Notice what Jesus says. Have you not read what was said to you by God? Wait, you? God wrote Genesis? God wrote Exodus? God wrote Deuteronomy for the people of Jesus' day? I thought he wrote it for the people of Moses' day. Yes, but not just the people of Moses and Jesus' day, but the people for our day. This was written to you. It's for your learning, all of it. Thirdly, it matters to us to read and hear what God has spoken because it is spoken to us. So if it is spoken to us and God is speaking, he's speaking to us, we must read it because it matters. Fourthly, much scripture lies underground. It must be dug for. You hear that? Much scripture lies underground. It must be dug for. Have you ever had to dig a hole? You ever had to dig a deep hole with a shovel when you were three years old? Wait, no, not that young. When you were third grade? Dad said, go dig a hole in the backyard. We're going to do something. I don't know. Whatever the reason is, dig a hole. And you go out there and the ground is hard and you can barely get any. And, and, just, and you get blisters and you forget because you didn't know you're supposed to wear gloves. And it's hard, hard, hard work. Much of scripture is deep. And we have to learn to dig for it. But what is the problem with that? We, are, don't, we don't like hard work. And so there's so much to be said here about this. Have I said enough about the Bible reading challenge? Have you signed up? Have you started reading? Are you on track? If you haven't, you're just one day behind. That's easy. Jump in today. Start reading God's word. But it must go beyond reading. We must come together and study it. We must spend time in long sermons about it. We must come on Sunday night to study it some more. These things are important because the truth is deep many times and we have to dig for it. And it takes time to dig. Um, and, that's, uh, and we need to read widely, deeply. Read, we need to read the Old Testament. Many of you won't read the Old Testament unless you're forced to. And so we need to do that. We need to study. But notice the response to what Jesus says, verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Notice that it's not about the Sadducees' response, but the crowd's response. What do you think the Sadducees' response was? It doesn't even say the response because I don't think the Sadducees cared one bit. He answered it. He devastatingly, victoriously crushed them with his answer. And it was like, because they didn't care. But the crowds who were paying attention, they're astonished at how Jesus answers the question. But though they might not have been astonished, if you look ahead to next week's passage, it says that the Sadducees had been silenced, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they weren't blown away, they weren't astonished, they weren't surprised, but they were silenced. They had nothing to say. They were defeated. Now, in conclusion, what do we need to know? If you're not a Christian today, if you're someone who doesn't even believe in life after death, it's not enough to be astonished by God's answer. You need to trust in the eternal God who gives the gift of eternal life to all who trust in his eternal son, Jesus. It's not enough to come to church and be amazed or shocked or surprised by the things that are happening to see the depth of the teaching. You must trust. There is life after death. There's a God who rose from the dead. His name is Jesus. And he's coming again one day. But the good news is that if you trust in Jesus Christ because of his life, his sinless life, and his death on the cross, you can be saved and you can have eternal life with him in heaven because you will be resurrected either to eternal life in heaven or eternal life in hell. Eternal life is coming for every person. So you can be born again. So repent and believe. And as Christians, we must know the power of God and we must know the scriptures. We must know the power of God. We must know the scriptures. And if we don't know the scriptures, will we know the power of God? 
Why do we struggle so much in our lives? Because we don't know the power of God. We don't know the truth about God. And why do we struggle so much with knowing those things? Because we don't know the scriptures. We must be people of the book who have dug deeply into it. And so that's our challenge. Ask the men to come as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We gather together around this table because we are those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back to his death and his resurrection. We serve a living Savior. He is alive. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered hell. He defeated Satan on the cross. And as people who trust in him, we rejoice in life eternal. We rejoice in the resurrection of the dead. First of all, for Christ, who is the first fruits of our own resurrection and ours to come. And so we gather on this table as people who trust in not only the death of Jesus and the payment for our sins, but also the resurrection of Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. And that is great news for us. So if you're a Christian today, you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're trusting him today, you followed in, the, uh, in believing in him in baptism, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. And so as we prepare for that, let's take a moment to prepare our hearts for that silently. The Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After supper, I took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Just do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen.